Go, go back to Revelation 4. Revelation 4. What did you make of that passage when we read it a moment ago? What's the first thing that stands out to you? Holy, holy, holy. What else? When you're introduced to this throne room scene, what do you think? What comes to mind? Sovereignty. Sovereignty. What sovereignty? Um, like regal. Regal. Yeah. Reign. Power. Rule. Authority. Absolutely. Anything else? I would say above and beyond all that. Okay. It's above and beyond really it's a anything. Higher form of anything that we could ever imagine. Yeah. Above anything that we've experienced, seen, or, or known. What else? Worthy. Worthy. Looking at a, a regal scene, a scene of power and authority beyond anything that we've seen or witnessed or comprehended, uh, where cries of holy, holy, holy are offered before this throne and cries of worthy, worthy, worthy are offered before this throne. As you read the passage, it's, it's mind-blowing what you, you witness here. You, you see that, first of all, this is the risen Lord Jesus Christ who's speaking to John in chapter 1. We see uh, verse 12, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. There's a, a voice that John hears and he, he turns and he sees one in the midst of uh, some lampstands, seven golden lampstands which reflect the churches, uh, specific local churches, but also churches in their totality. The, um, a reflection of the entire church and its situation, its trials, its temptations, its struggle across all time and history. He sees in the middle of these lampstands one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. And then he explains, For the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the stars, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And then we see, following that, seven letters to these seven churches. And again, these seven letters to seven churches were not only for the individual local churches in that day and time. We have them today, and it's indicated that these situations in which these seven particular local church bodies find themselves can be reflected in our own experiences of churches around the world today. We have churches that are suffering. We have churches that are checking the boxes, but they lack 
love for Christ, for the lost and for His people. We have churches that are uh, themselves thinking that they are something when they are actually nothing. Churches that believe they are rich when they are actually poor. Churches that are in their own mind doing alright but they are self-reliance and finding themselves led into uh, a false sense of security finding themselves falling into sin and into toleration of false beliefs and behavior. And we have churches that are um, enduring, churches that are suffering and that are really, they're, they're facing a difficult time, but they are alive. They are rich. They are filled with spirit-filled believers who, though they suffer, know the promises that are theirs in Jesus Christ. We have churches that are lukewarm, we have churches that are hot, and we have churches that are cold. That's the scene uh, that we have around the world in regard to churches to this day. But right here in Revelation 4, following the close of that series of opening letters, this voice again calls up to John, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and immediately we enter the throne room of God. Immediately we could be distracted by what's going on. In the, in the throne room we see initially the one who's seated on the throne. And the one who's seated on the throne should demand our full focus, but let's be honest, we sometimes get distracted by the peripheral, don't we? We get distracted by those things that are on the outer edges. We get distracted by things that don't at the end of the day really matter or have uh, much significance beyond um, accents of what um, God has created. We see the throne, but then we see what's around the throne. We see 24 thrones on which are seated 24 elders. These elders represent the church, Old Testament and New Testament. They represent, um, well, if you go back to 1 Chronicles 24 verse 1, you see that David divides the house of Levi into 24 parts to represent the whole. The house of Levi was the, um, the, the tribe. The tribe of Levi was the tribe where the priests came from. So this seems to be a reflection of that, 24 parts that represent the whole. In this case, we can um, determine that these 24 thrones are reflective of the whole of God's people across Old Testament and New Testament. It's likely, uh, some have presented, that there's representation of the 12 tribes on 12 of the thrones, the 12 tribes of Israel, and that their other 12 thrones are the 12 thrones um, for the apostles. Regardless, these represent, uh, these elders represent the leaders of the church in Old Testament and New Testament eras, saints from all times of history, and the ones who inscribed these words as led by the Holy Spirit. So that's around the throne, and we can look at what's going on around the throne and think, my, that's incredible, that's, that's amazing. But then we look at what's coming from the throne. There are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And then we might get distracted by what's before the throne, and we, we look and we see there's burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. 
Now, seven is a perfect number. It also indicates wholeness in the Hebrew language. We don't need to get bogged down by numerology, but numbers in the Bible have a meaning and have a significance. And while we shouldn't be overly distracted by them, recognize that this is speaking very likely to the, of the Holy Spirit, as also referred to in Isaiah 11 verse 2. This is the Holy Spirit of God. This is a spiritual experience that John is having in this moment. He's in the very throne room of God. He is um, facing the throne of God. Around it are 24 thrones of believers of all eras, uh, of the elders of these believers. From the throne, there's, uh, there's power, there's flashes of lightning, there's rumblings, there's peals of thunder. And then, bizarre, on each side of the throne... Creatures, four living creatures that can only be described as four living creatures because we don't really have, uh, we don't actually know a species that is on earth that is like this. They're created by God, but they're created heavenly spiritual beings. John does his best to describe them. One has the face of a lion, the other an ox, the other the face of a man. The other is like an eagle in flight. But what makes them unique from these creatures is that all of them have six wings. They're full of eyes, indicating um, knowledge, discernment, awareness. They constantly worship. Now there's a variety of interpretation regarding this and we could spend probably the whole t time right now talking about the symbolism of the wings or the eyes. or the, we, we could spend our whole time talking about what these heavenly, powerful, mysterious creatures are. We can look at Ezekiel 1. I encourage you to maybe make a note of that. Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 refer to these creatures as well. They're very likely the cherubim. The cherubim who um, are angelic creatures. They are not angels. Do not, do not mix them up with angels. There's a difference. Uh, you have the seraphim, the cherubim, and you have uh, normal angelic um, normal angels. You have angelic spiritual beings which encapsulate all of the heavenly creatures. But you have the seraphim, the cherubim, and then you have the angels. These are a special uh, grouping of angelic being. Their sole purpose is to worship. We could talk a long time about what's on the throne, the one seated on the throne, which we'll come to around the throne. We could talk about all of that. We could look at what's happening from the throne, the flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. We could talk about the Holy Spirit, the seven spirits, seven torches of fire, before the throne. We could talk about on each side of the throne, but, but to dwell on the significance of those in the throne room and all that's happening in the throne room is to lose sight of the focus of the throne room. It's to lose sight of the subject. And that's what we do. People, how many times have I had people come up to me and say, ah, let's go through Revelation. Let's go through Revelation. Why do you want to go through Revelation? It's so mysterious. Well, that's kind of against the name, is it not? Revelation is meant to be a revelation. It doesn't mean that you're going to understand everything. It doesn't mean... But, but we approach Revelation like, let me decipher every hidden element. 
Let me figure out all of the pieces of this puzzle. And we concoct all manner of theories. Now granted, yes, there are some things that we need to talk about more so than the people who received this book uh, in its initial uh, presentation because we're 2,000 years removed from their immediate historical geographical context. But the principle remains. If you are focused on the peripheral rather than the core focus of Revelation, you're going to miss it. You're going to get bogged down and going down rabbit trails and um, following paths that you never come back from. You'll, you'll never find out the main meaning of it or recognize the beauty uh, of the mystery of who God is. This is a revelation of God's power. So I want us to, as we enter this throne room, recognize that the one on the throne is the focus. Not what's happening around the throne or what's coming from the throne or what's on each side of the throne. Not the creatures in the throne room. Not even the elders. The one on the throne is the focus. And so he should be your focus and mine as well. Everything revolves around him. The one on the throne is majestic and mighty and mysterious. And finally, we see that holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is, and is to come. And worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created indicates that the one on the throne is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. He's the focus, majestic, mighty, and mysterious. And he is to be worshipped. Why? If someone says, why should I worship God? Why, why, why do you make a big deal of worshiping God? Why do you make a big deal of following God? What are the reasons? If you follow along, this is how it is. We worship God because of who He is. We worship God because of who He is. Would you say that with me? We worship God because of who He is. Again, we worship God because of who He is. Who is He? He is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty. We see there the title Lord, which indicates His sovereignty. It indicates His power. It, it gives meaning to the regal scene that we see here. The Lord God. God, the highest power of powers. The one who is above all things. The Creator. The Lord God Almighty. All-powerful, fully in control, the master, the Lord of it all, the great sovereign. We worship God because of who He is. We worship the one on the throne because of who He is. But we don't only worship God because of who He is. We worship God because of what He is. And what He is is consistent with who He is. If, if you have God, the Lord God Almighty, He must have certain characteristics. He must be in a particular place of sovereignty and authority to be declared to be the Lord God Almighty. And He must have a particular um, characteristic about Him that leads to this scene. Particular attributes. And those attributes are um, in, in many ways limitless. We could talk about so many of the attributes of God and uh, that might be a, a study that you can have at some point in time. But we worship God because of what He is. And this particular passage shows us three main things. It tells us that He is holy. 
Holy means to be set apart, to be completely pure, to be spotless, without blemish. Unstained, uncorrupted, fully just, fully righteous. The best of people on the face of the earth do not check that box. The best of people on earth cannot claim such holiness, such such justice, such righteousness. This world cries out for justice. It cries out for righteousness. It doesn't understand righteousness. Our version of righteousness and justice is so cheap. It's It's so failing. It only scratches the surface. The righteousness of God is limitless. He is fully holy, set apart, altogether different. We're in our little dimension here, trying our hardest sometimes to be the best that we can be and do the best with what we have. God intrinsically is holy, flawless, without any imperfection. As a result, He has these creatures crying out, never ceasing to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. But not only is He holy, He is worthy. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. There are two things in one there. We see He is worthy of all adoration and all praise. He is worthy of this, not because he is, uh, only because he is powerful, not only because he is um, in control, he is worthy because he is holy. He is worthy because there is nothing about his character that makes him worthless. There is nothing that should cause us to shy away from praising him, from worshiping him, from crying out, holy are you. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Why is He worthy? He's worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for He created all things. He is holy, He is worthy, and He is the Creator. We worship God because of who He is, the Lord God Almighty, and that is inseparable because of, uh, it's inseparable from what He is. Holy, worthy, the Creator of all things, the one whose will brings all things into existence. Things that are seen and things that are unseen. Things that are, uh, are known to us and things that are unknown to us. The mysteries of the universe revealed and hidden are all a part of God's perfect plan and power. He is worthy of all honor, all glory, and all power. But we don't only worship God because of who He is. We don't only worship God because of what He is. We worship God because of where He is. We worship God because of where He is. Would you say that with me? We worship God because of where He is. So first of all, what did we see? We worship God because of who He is. Second, we worship God because of what He is. Third, we worship God because of where He is. And where is He? He's in heaven, yes. But where is He here? Where where do we see Him here in this scene? Seated on the throne. He's seated on the throne. I saw as I was there a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And round the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Round the throne 
We have this scene. But the one who's on the throne is the one who is the focus of this throne room. We see throughout the Scriptures detail concerning this throne. Here's a few elements of it. We see that in Hebrews 4.16 that um, we should call upon the throne of grace that we might find mercy and grace to help in time of need. His throne is a throne of grace. It, it gives us God's promises and God's gifts, though they are unmerited. His throne is an established throne. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. We open up by reading that together. Psalm 103, verse 19. His kingdom is over all things. He has total sovereignty and power. His throne is an extensive throne. He reigns over the nations. Psalm 47, verse 8 says, God sits on His holy throne, reigning over all the nations. We have our rulers, we have our governors, we have our, um, our kings, our parliaments, and, and they always change, and they always will fail because they're only men. Their thrones cannot extend to anywhere close to the degree of God's throne. Even the mightiest ruler will always reach an end point. It was said that Alexander the Great, after conquering um, all of the nations that he knew could be conquered after beginning and enacting this process that was known as Hellenization, that is basically making the known world at the time Greek, Alexander sat down on a stone and he wept. And it was asked, why are you weeping? You're the ruler of the world. You're the emperor of everything. Why are you crying, Alexander? And he wept because there were no more nations to conquer in his mind. And yet... There were many other nations beyond that he knew not of. There were many other countries that he did not conquer. And Alexander died. And his empire was carved up between multiple people. God's throne is an extensive throne. It extends not only to all nations. It extends to the entire universe. To the furthest reaches of the universe. His throne is an extensive throne. From His presence, earth and sky fled away, Revelation 20 verse 11 says. His throne is an enlivening throne. The river of the water of life flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is what John witnesses later on in Revelation. His throne gives life. It's not a despotic evil throne. It is a life-giving throne. It is an enlivening throne. It is an exalted throne. Here we have a scene of exaltation. Holy, holy, holy. Worthy, worthy. In, in chapter 5, this continues. The, we see um, the, the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, embodied and symbolized here. Worthy is the cry. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures that we have been introduced to said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped. His throne is an exalted throne. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. That is the throne of God. An established, extensive, enlivening, exalted throne. It's an extraordinary throne in, um, in Daniel chapter 7. 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, he, he, he says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." It's an extraordinary throne. This scene is uh, exactly what our friend Brian said. It's, it's above anything that we can imagine. It's above any experience that we could um, uh, understand. It's not ordinary. This is not something that you can find in any nation at any point in history in this world. It is an extraordinary throne. It's an equitable throne. Psalm 45 verse 6 says that um, he upholds a scepter of uprightness. A scepter of uprightness is his kingdom. He is righteous. He is equitable. He is just. Psalm 89 verse 14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. In Psalm 98 we see that he judged the peoples with righteousness and the nations with equity. It is an incarnate throne. Ezekiel 37 verse 27, and this is looking forward to the day when our Lord Jesus returns again. His throne will find its place with us. His kingdom is already. Jesus um, came declaring, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in, in Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, there's a kingdom inaugurated. And you and I are a part of that kingdom. We are um, part of that kingdom. We are priests of a holy nation. But there is coming a day where the spiritual will not only be spiritual, it will be spiritual and physical. Our faith will become sight. We will live in a new heaven and new earth of righteousness. There will be no sin, no injustice, no wickedness. We will understand the tangible benefits of worshiping before this established, extensive, enlivening, exalted, extraordinary, equitable throne. Because God will be once and for all time with us, once and for all time reigning. His throne is an incarnate throne, and what's even more special, it never ends. His throne is an eternal throne. It is forever and ever. He says it there in Revelation 4 with emphasis that they, the creatures, the four living creatures, they fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. We worship God because of where He is, seated on the throne. And finally, we worship God because of when He is. We worship God because of when He is. We worship God because of who He is, the Lord God Almighty, because of what He is, holy, worthy, the Creator, because of where He is, seated on the throne. We worship God because of when He is. From everlasting to everlasting. The first, the last, the living one, the Alpha, the Omega, the one who reigns forever and ever. Infinite, eternal, reigning, powerful on His throne. This is the throne room of God. As you enter, how can you not but stand in awe and say, This is the ruler of it all, and I need to be right with him.
How can you not but fall on your knees and say, holy, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was time past, who is time present, and who is to come, eternity future. How can you not stand before Him and, and in awe and wonder and recognizing the mystery and the majesty of the peripheral of this scene, realize that the peripheral is mysterious and, and, and strange to us as it actually is. It, it, it is just the peripheral. One who sits on the throne is above all of that. Far more majestic than anything else. He's there. How can you not do that and just cry out? Worthy. Worthy. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. What is the object of your worship? Do you find yourself getting distracted by what's created? So much that you lose sight of the Creator. Or maybe, maybe it's not that you've lost sight of the Creator and are focusing on what's created. Maybe you never had your eyes on the Creator at all. The song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full on His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When you appreciate and enjoy what God has created, do, do you do so in recognition and reverence of God or is the appreciation and enjoyment just about you? You know what I mean. Where you're just living life, you're just kind of going through the motions of day-to-day -day life. Maybe you love it, maybe you hate it. Either way, your, your focus isn't where it needs to be. Maybe things are great, maybe you're, you're having a great time and maybe everything is wonderful. But you're just going through the motions of that, feeling maybe a bit self-satisfied, not looking to Jesus. Just doing things how you want to do them. He, Jesus isn't really first. He's not really preeminent. You get a better offer that comes along, you're there. Maybe you're having a rotten time. Maybe you think, well, that's not my issue. Well, maybe your issue is that you're having a really rotten time and you're so bitter and, uh, and distracted by the rotten time you're having that your eyes aren't on the throne. God, may we trust you in, in, in looking in the good times and in the bad times. May we trust our Lord whether everything's okay or whether everything's going wrong, we sometimes become so self-absorbed. Or our focus is on those other things that are created, but we forget about the creator of it all. How do you worship? Why do you worship? Do you know why you worship? Worship God because of who He is, because of what He is, because of where He is. Because of when He is. Knowing that one day you and I will stand before Him accountable and responsible. We will have to give an answer to Him. You and I will have to give an answer. We can bow our knee in fear and terror. Unable to move. Because we aren't right with Him. Or we can bow our knee in humble adoration and say, I'm home. Holy, holy, holy. 
Worthy, worthy, worthy. And we can enter the presence of our God with confidence because of the way of Jesus Christ. Hebrews says in chapter 10, Let us now with confidence enter the holy place. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One day you and I will stand in the throne room of God. What will we do when we stand there? Father, I pray that you will enable us to be ready for that day when you will judge the world and righteousness and the people with equity. Help us to stand before you in garments pure and holy. Help us to stand before you and cry out, Holy, worthy are you. And may we know peace as we never have known it in this world. In Christ's name, amen.